listening to the Citizens Podcast from Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama. King Saul has died. David is starting his ascension to actually be king. He was anointed a long while ago, but now finally with Saul dead, a path clears to him to be the outright king. However, first he becomes king of Judah, which is a tribe in the south. And it takes seven full years of family drama, military intrigue, political maneuvering before David is finally king of all of Israel. And 2 Samuel 3 sums it up like this. It just says, For a long, there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. And eventually the house of Saul gives up these rights to the throne and King David immediately starts this conquest to finish this conquest of the pagans by taking Jerusalem, taking what will be the capital of Israel. It's a fortress. And so he takes the capital and the next thing he does, he says, let's go get the ark. The ark has been away for a long time. It's been more of a sideshow in Israel life. It's been staying at Abinadab's house after Saul's army lost the ark and the Philistines got it. And then the Philistines gave it back because the ark was kind of dominating the Philistines. They kind of left the ark on the side. And David said, hey, we're God's people. We're going to go get that ark. And that's just what he does. David cares about the ark because David cares about God. And so what's the connection between God and this ark? Well, a theologian named Dale Ralph Davis summarizes the connection like this. It says, the ark has the presence of God upon it, is a place of God's ruling, of his reconciling, and his revelation. It's a place of God's ruling that his presence would be there and would be leading Israel onward. In 1 Chronicles 28, David calls it the footstool of God, which sounds super weird unless you think back then kings sat on gigantic thrones. Their feet couldn't reach the bottom, which is probably a little bit embarrassing to have that big of a throne. So they put a footstool for the king. And so David compares this. He knows God is bigger than the space above the ark, but he's saying the space above the ark is like the footstool of God's feet, that he is this ruler leading them onward. In the second way, it's the reconciling presence of God. Leviticus 16 explains that once a year, they would shed and kill this animal and spray blood all over the ark, flicking it from the priest's finger to cover for the sins of the people. This is a place of ruling, but also a place of reconciliation of how people were forgiven under this system. And in the third sense, the ark was a part of revelation. It's where Moses met God. Inside the ark was the stone Ten Commandments, those Ten Commandments, Aaron's budding staff, the manna kept in a jar. It was a place that gave evidence to what God had did and what God had said. The very revelation of God kept history in a box, but a living God to reside with it. And so David, as God's king, wants to bring this presence of God home to Jerusalem to set up the kingdom for real, to finally do it 
right. And he wants to bring God where he is because David wants to be with God. David wants to honor God in Israel. He doesn't want to be like Saul. He doesn't want to be like any of the judges who went astray. He wants, he wants God to be at the center of the life of Israel and the center of his life. And therefore we get verse two. Take a look with me. Verse two tells us this, that David arose and went with all the people to bring up from there Benadab's house, the ark of God, who sits enthroned on the cherubim on the top of the ark. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Io, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart. And so they set out on this journey. It's going to be many miles to Jerusalem. And check out the mood. It is Mardi Gras, ancient Israel style, verse 5. It says, David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets. I had to look up what that is. It's a little clapper thing that I love. I'm so glad we all know that. Castanets, cymbals. They brought the whole band. We think we have a lot of worship leading going on. They had like 30,000 plus people all marching down a road celebrating. It would have been a deafening Bryant-Denny stadium roar with that many instruments and people. People for miles, maybe it was quieter back then, I mean, 100 miles would have heard this roar going down these ancient streets. Yet the cart hits a rough spot on the road, the oxen stumble, stumble, and it starts to topple. Do we got a picture of that ark? I want to show you what starts to stumble. It's like this. It's a big golden box, like three and a half feet by two and a half feet. It's like a medium large Amazon box, you know? but it's made of wood and it's gold inside and out. And then there's these cherubim on top with the crazy wings, which are like angel creatures. And that's what starts falling off the cart and tragedy strikes, verse six. And Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God to take hold of it for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord killed, was kindled against Uzzah. God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. Imagine the silence after whatever lightning strike, breaking out fire, I don't know, explosion happened, that the party stops immediately as 30,000 people start to whisper what happened to the ark and what happened to the dude who was next to it. David's no longer celebrating, to say the least. And the tragedy isn't the ark falling down. It's that Uzzah grabs the ark with his hand. The scripture describes it. There's a breaking out, a judgment of God against him. And the reaction of David, the leader, the guy who orchestrated this whole thing, he's angry. He's terrified. He doesn't really know what's happened. It's probably the same reaction we would have. This is a very real moment of the Bible. Wait a minute, Uzzah died? What just happened? And David thinks, wait a minute, I'm a good king. I'm doing the right thing. We're trying to bring this ark back. I'm trying to put you at the center of everything, God. And, the, and what, what happened? How could Uzzah die like this? 
And David speaks the deeper question that we're probably all asking because it's a question not just for David, but it's for every person that's ever lived has had to ask and answer this question. It's verse nine. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? Remember, the ark is God's presence. David is asking, how can I come to God? How can I be with God? If to be near God is to die, then how can this possibly work? If God is that dangerous, then how can we live with him? Because David's lived long enough to know, I can't live without him. I can't live without him but apparently I don't know if I can live with them because I might die. Remember, David's heart, this is a guy with his heart set on God. We've just heard the stories and seen his prayers. I mean, this is years, this is a decade plus in somewhat public life, trusting God, praying to God, trusting in God, leading others to trust in God, triumphing with God. This dude has won with God an awful lot. And while David cares about God, he is now king and needs to learn how to be careful with God in his ways. He cares, but he's about to take a turn to where he must be careful not to presume on God, not take God for granted, not just do whatever he wants. And David is shook to the core. This place, they call it God breaking out. They name this place where the ark fell and Uzzah died, this breaking out of God which is just spook David to the heart because in 2 Samuel 5, just the chapter before, they call, they use that very word, this God breaking out four different times to describe what it was like to have King David lead them in the battle with the Philistines. That every time David led them in the battle, God broke out and won. And so here's David looking around like, God, you, you break out against our enemies, not against us. What's going on, God? Imagine how foolish you might feel as a leader that you led 30,000 people to go do this thing. And the result is a funeral, not a party in Jerusalem. And here's the truth that David and us must learn. It's a central question to unlock the rest. Is why did Uzzah die? Uzzah didn't die because God is bad. Uzzah didn't die because God is angry or unpredictable. Uzzah died because he, like me, like you, like us, are sinful people, whether we think we are or not. And in this moment, Uzzah and David had disobeyed God's law in at least three ways. The first way that ark hit in the ground isn't against God's law. The earth is not sinful like a man. Somehow Uzzah assumed that the dirtiness of the earth was somehow less sinful than him and his actual moral life before God. So when he reaches out that hand, he presumes he's less sinful to the ground and breaks the law of God. The second is this. Uzzah shouldn't have had that ark on a cart. The Philistines carted around the ark 
But God's law, when looked at in Exodus 25, 14, clearly states how this ark's to be moved. Just how God cared about how the ark was built, he had already thought about this to make sure people did not touch and mess with the ark once his presence was there. Exodus 25 says this, insert poles into the rings on the side of the ark to carry it. The poles are to remain in the rings of the ark. They are not to be removed. There was a way to pick up this ark, to not touch it, to not be involved with it. There are long wooden poles wrapped in gold. And it's even clear to say, hey, don't take them out. Just leave them right there. When you pick it up, when you put it down, you have poles for this one thing to do. And we learn from the book of Numbers and Numbers 4 that this ark isn't to be just carried by anybody. It's not just for anyone to pick up or anyone to put down. It says, I just want the Levites, the priestly tribe to do it. And among the Levites, just one family branch, the Kothites, just one little family. Their whole job is this, to obey these laws, to keep me holy, to obey just as I say, because this is the presence of God we're talking about. This isn't just like $10 million. Who cares? Who cares? This is the God of the universe putting his presence here in a way. And it says this in Numbers 4. After Aaron and his sons finished covering the holy furnishings and all the holy articles, when the camp is ready to move, only then are the Kothites to come and do the carrying. But they must not touch the holy things or they will die. God isn't being out of control. He's being consistent with his word. And the Kothites are to carry those things that are in the tent of meeting. God called the Kothites to carry this thing on these poles, never touching. Because remember, God in this ark is not like all the pagan gods, where people just kind of craft stuff and make up a god whenever they want, and make up a wood god and a stone god, and do whatever they want with them. This isn't, this is the real God. So there's real rules of how to handle it. And what they do, they throw a big, thick leather covering over it. So not only do they not touch it, they don't even really see it. That's what Aaron's saying. They're not even really supposed to look at it. It's supposed to be a thing that's totally set apart from the people. And reason three, this tragedy came. And this is the kicker, is that David should know all this. It says in Deuteronomy 17 that the king is supposed to read and study the law of God. That's the king's job to know the law and lead God's people. And if David had time to get 30,000 people together, had time to throw this big old party, then David should have known God's laws around the ark. Moving the ark is his idea. Moving the ark is his leadership. David's responsible for Uzzah's death, even if it was Uzzah's error, because David was in charge. That's how responsibility and leadership works. And we see for the first time, really, right here, that David's not perfect either. He kind of wins everything up until this point. We know he's a simple man like every man, but this is the first time that David really blows it and a man is dead because of it. And there's really no way getting around it. And as you see this big reaction out of David to come to grips with all this, he's a man after God's heart, but he's a flawed man. And he doesn't get this initially. Instead, what do we do when we don't understand? We get angry. And we usually start blaming people. You ever felt angry and confused when you are disappointed? 
You ever felt angry and confused when things go poorly and start blaming others? Disappointment's a huge part of life, and how we respond to it is a mega trajectory of our life issue. David just kind of throws up his hands. When he gives this over in verse 10 and 11, look what it says. It says, so David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Odom of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months. And the Lord blessed Odom-Edom and all his household. He doesn't take it over there thinking it will bless him. Odom Edom is a pagan living in Israel. So David's kind of saying, I don't know. It's your problem, man. I don't know. He's a pagan. Whatever happens next. I don't know. That feels like the least politically bad place to drop off this dangerous object. He's not here to bless Odom Edom. He's just trying to get the problem away from him because he can't risk bringing into Jerusalem not knowing what would happen. And that's where we see something amazing, that God doesn't strike down this pagan in his farmhouse. He blesses them. God is not wanton. God's not up and down. God's not a toddler with too much power. Like the gods of most global religions have these unpredictable, up and down, better please them gods. Our God's not like that. God is with his people to be with his people and to bless them. And that's what he shows in Obed-Edom. Yet, as God is with his people and with his people to bless them, yet God is holy. Sin cannot dwell before a holy God, for sin is rebellion against God himself. Sin can't live before God. It will be destroyed. Every time, which brings us to David's question in verse 9 again. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of God come to me? How can I be with God? And when David learns of the blessing of Odeb, of Obed-Edom. He learns that God is not here to judge, but to bless. And we learn in 1 Chronicles 15, it records that David learns the right way. He goes back and learns what they should do with this ark. And he finds the reverent way to follow God's law with the ark. So he brings in the Kothites. He brings in the poles. And this is what they do in verse 12. So David went up and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David. That's Jerusalem with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark, they're bearing it on poles, the ark of the Lord had gone six steps. He sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. They bore that ark, carrying it on poles, not a cart. No one touched it. But the biggest piece here is the sacrifice. They don't presume on God, but rather they make a sacrifice. How can a sinful people come to God only by blood sacrifice. And that's exactly what David does. Blood must be spilt for a sinful people to come before a holy God. David has reconsidered his own sinfulness before God, reconsidered Israel has left this ark for, I don't know, a half a dozen years with no attention to it. He comes and says, we have sinned God. We're going to sacrifice these animals before 
for you and do it the right way this time. He atones for their sin, or the word atone, to make sacrificial payment for sin to God. And David comes to this conclusion and action by reflecting on God's law and probably reflecting on passages like Leviticus 17.11, which is so instructive for us. It says, for the life of the body is in its blood. That's the, why blood, man? What's going on here? Why blood? Well, the life of a body is in its blood. I have given you the blood on the altar to purify you, making you right with the Lord. It is the blood given in exchange for a life that makes purification possible. Even God's king in David needs forgiveness and sacrifice for his life. Jesus is the greater David, though. It's David is just a whisper of a Jesus to come because Jesus doesn't need to sacrifice for himself. Jesus is sinless, and Jesus chooses to be that sacrifice for us. Hebrews 9 explains it, even reflecting on that Leviticus 17 passage like this. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. God isn't turning a blind eye to our sins. Rather, God is punishing our sins on Jesus. How can someone come to God only through the blood sacrifice of Jesus? But as it is, Jesus has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice, not of an animal, but of himself. An animal could never really do the job because you sin again and you need another animal. Only a sinless man could die to bring us all the way home. When Jesus dies on the cross, it's to bring us to God by his blood. Jesus is the once and for all ultimate blood sacrifice to come to God. And I want you to feel the clarity of this. This is the gospel, church. To burn it into your heart and mind, this precious truth. And I love the clarities of, clarity of Colossians 1 right here. For it explains this, it says, For God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in Jesus, fully God, fully man, and through Jesus to reconcile himself to all things, whether on earth or things in heaven, making peace through Jesus' blood shed on the cross. Our religion is an unavoidably bloody one. It offends our modern sensibilities since we're so detached from the killing of most things. But there is a visceral, painful, bloody reality that all Christians must reckon with. That you're not made right because God had a good feeling that day. You are made right because he died for you. Without Jesus, Uzzah is our only future when we meet God one day. 
Without Jesus, you won't be able to be in God's presence because of your sin. Without Jesus on judgment day, God would rightly break out against you and I and all sinful people. Unless you trust the greater David, unless you trust the greater David, Jesus, the true Savior King, to be the blood sacrifice in your place, then you should fully expect God to break out against you. Because what God did on the cross was break out upon Jesus, bearing the sin of the world for us. So I urge you, be reconciled to God today. Be reconciled the only way you can come to God through the sacrifice. Repent and trust Jesus for the forgiveness of sins and be reconciled by God to God today. Don't be like Uzzah or David presuming you know God, believing you can approach God any way you choose. You will be wrong. God has said, it is by my son you may draw near. Come near to the God you can't live without, yet the God you can't approach on your own. It is truly Jesus that saves us. Listen, church, Jesus is strong enough to actually save you from your sins. And Jesus is gentle enough to shepherd you out of your sins in your life. He's strong enough to save but he's also gentle enough to come near whatever it is, whatever the many dozens of sins they are, and help you start walking towards the light today. He's both. And that's great news for us. And notice, all these people couldn't touch the ark. Even with the sacrifices, they're still on poles. They better be careful. Rules to obey. But when the true king comes... Jesus doesn't kill the people who touch him. Rather, Jesus heals all who touch him, looking forward to the price that would be fully paid for every person that touches him. Jesus' mighty power is healing. See, God's holiness destroys sin, even on the cross, but God's grace heals sinners. Mercy truly triumphs judgment in the end. And God woos David back by blessing Odom Edom. That's what God's doing. He's blessing this pagan who had this thing dumped on him that he might not even understand, but he's also wooing David back. He's the shepherd to the shepherd David. He's saying, come on back. You have not understood the Uzzah thing today. Uzzah's your fault, not my fault. Go consider the scriptures. See my character towards Obed-Edom. And come on back, David. And I want you to ask, is God wooing you back today? Whether it's through the scriptures we're preaching or the lives you see at Citizens, is God making you jealous to have a relationship with God, wooing your heart towards him even right now? Because when you delight in God by whose when you delight in God, who by Christ's blood delights in you, look what happens. You change. Verse 14. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. 
And so David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark, shouting and with the sound of a horn. David is that friend at a good wedding. He is feeling it. He don't need a partner. He is just going for it. And people are going wild. The heat is up on this miles long dance floor because they have been reconciled to God by sacrifice alone. And he's wearing a long priestly robe that would have covered him from neck all the way to his ankles. And this party just rages for miles. They're straight in the city. And it describes this banquet that David throws. He makes more sacrifices. He puts the ark in a tent. But then he throws what's described as a wedding banquet because the husband is home. God's bride is his people. And so he's given out these raisin cakes and all these things. There's a celebration and there's a party because just like ancient times and today, sharing a meal means we're friends. That's why we're always eating at Citizens. It's not because we're gluttonous. It's because we want to be friends. We want to be friends with each other because we're friends with God and friends with everyone that we cross paths with. We are the people of the sacrifice. The wedding feast is always for us too. We are put right by sacrifice, not because God is bloodthirsty, but because we are sinners and God is reconciling himself to us. The first attempt to be with God, they started with a party and they ended with a funeral. In the second attempt, they had a sacrificial offering and ended with a wedding. That's the gospel. And it's good news for you and I. Yet not everyone celebrates. Verse 16 says this, as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window saw King David leaping, dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. David returned to bless his whole household, to bring the party all the way in. But Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamely uncovers himself. Michal is Saul's daughter, but also David's first wife. She did not celebrate with the ark. She did not dance before God. She stayed in the castle watching and judging, though the custom would be even in this book to come out and sing with the king to join the parade. And in verse 20, she tells a lie, or at least a big exaggeration. She says that David is being sexually inappropriate, that he's not wearing any clothes and acting like a drunk outside of a bar. But we just heard that he's wearing a linen ephod that covers him from neck to ankle. He's not doing anything inappropriate. It's unusual for a king to dance like a wild man. It's unusual for a king to take off his robes and take off the crown and whatever else a king in that age would wear. But David's not being inappropriate. She's telling a lie about him. And the right response to the gospel is to realize that God delights in you. Therefore, you delight in God and maybe even dance. The wrong response to the gospel is to ignore God and judge those who delight in God. Mikkel cares more about appearances, more about what's on the outside, cares about people's approval 
a lot like her dad Saul. That's why the text keeps calling her the daughter of Saul, the daughter of Saul instead of the wife of David over and over. David has come to care about the gospel and be careful about God's ways because he cares about God. Yet David is markedly unconcerned about people's approval. David's wild dancing is out of humble joy and honor of God and brings joy and teaches people to enjoy God. And that's what brings true honor on us. When we humbly submit to God, we enter a place of true honor in this life. Verse 21 tells us more. David retorted to Michal, I was dancing before the Lord, not for anyone else, who chose me above your father and all his family. He appointed me as the leader of Israel, the people of the Lord, so I celebrate before the Lord. Yes, I am willing to look even more foolish than this, even to be humiliated in my own eyes. I will happily take off those kingly robes, but those servant girls you mentioned will indeed think I'm distinguished. People are going to honor me for bringing God back to Jerusalem and teaching them to delight in God. Verse 23, so Michal, the daughter of Saul, remained childless through her entire life. To follow Jesus, others may judge you, but we must choose to celebrate Jesus and not worry about others. We must choose to celebrate and be worried about what God thinks about us. And that's that God delights in you by the sacrifice of his son, Jesus that we can delight back in God. It's okay to look foolish to the world in order to live wisely before God. David had to learn this too. He's imperfect, just like us. We're not told whether God, the Lord closed Michal's womb or that David and her just never reconciled to produce a child. But either way, standing on the sidelines with God, like Michal, it won't work. Standing on the sidelines of what God is doing isn't going to work. Neither is approaching God on our own terms like Uzzah. Whether we keep God at a distance and refuse the delight, or whether we think we can approach God any way we want, neither works. There is only one way that we can be with God, and that's by sacrifice. Specifically, through the sacrifice of Jesus. For us. And because of God's sacrifice, we can celebrate. We can celebrate like David that we can be with God. We can celebrate that Jesus doesn't stay dead, but is surely alive, surely risen, surely has forgiven our sins, and surely we will live forevermore in the very presence of God. So I want to invite you to celebrate now as we worship, to celebrate as we prepare for Good Friday, to celebrate at the Easter egg hunt on Saturday, to celebrate on Easter Sunday that Jesus is alive and you can be with God, not based on your own merit, not by finding your way to God, not by staying on the sidelines, but only by the sacrifice and risen Jesus of himself. Let's invite others off the sidelines. Let's invite others off their own path and to follow Jesus with us. The ark killed those who touched it because they were sinful and God is holy. But Jesus heals the sinful who touch him because God's grace is real. 
The difference is the sacrifice. Jesus' death for our sins means forgiveness without end. You've been listening to the Citizens Church Podcast. Special thanks to Murphy DX, who recorded our theme music. If you'd like to learn more about Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama, you can visit us on our website at citizensbhm.com or on the usual suspects, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.